Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to the Graceland Church Podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus and love our neighbor for the good of the city. Thank you, Matt. What a beautiful depiction of He Leads Me Beside Still Waters, right? Awesome. You can actually find that. That was original with Matt. You can find it on YouTube. And uh, his name is listed on our website under uh, the different people that lead worship here. So you, if, you're, if you're curious, you could find it there. And don't worry, I've already got his commitment to do that every time he's here with, <laughs> with another song. So, yeah, <laughs> New Service Series. Matt plays guitar. <laughs> Thank you, Matt, for blessing us with that. Uh, welcome to Graceland. If I don't know you yet, uh, my name's Nathan. Honored to be our lead pastor here. We're really honored uh, to have you guys worshiping with us this morning. I was with a friend recently, uh, just a few days ago actually, who I thought was doing completely fine and there wasn't any major challenges in his life right now. And I just found out that he's actually experiencing uh, extreme hardship and division within his family. Uh, he is a grown a person, and he has grown siblings and some older parents, and their family has divided into two camps uh, over an issue that I was unaware of. And so your minds don't wander. It's not anyone here at church. Uh, it is someone that you guys don't know. Um, but I was heartbroken to hear about it. And one, it reminded me how important it is uh, that we as a church and we as followers of Jesus um, understand there's oftentimes a lot of things going on underneath the surface that we have no idea about. And giving care and compassion and prayer to people is what we need to be all about. It also reminded me how challenging family relationships can be, especially when you have sharp disagreements. Any amens to that? <laughs> you don't get to pick those family members. You're born into it. And we're going to look at a story today as we study through the Gospel of John that is a family event. It's the kind of event that probably everyone here has been to before. It's a wedding and a great feast. And if you've been around weddings, especially if you've been a part of weddings behind the scenes, uh, they take a lot of preparation. Uh, they take a lot of effort. They cost, even the cheapest ones, cost a good amount of money. Some of them cost an extraordinary amount of money. And stakes are high at weddings and family dynamics become very real at weddings. In fact, I didn't share this in first service, but my wife and I, the day before we got married, we, do you remember this? We were driving, of course you remember. We were driving uh, somewhere in one of our cars, I guess my car, and we were driving together and it became our first really legitimate argument <laughs> to the point where we had been dating only a few months. We got married quickly. I don't recommend that necessarily. And we had never argued once. Anybody ever, do you remember those few weeks at the beginning of your relationship? We had never argued once. And then the day before our wedding, we got into this huge argument in the car. And it was the first time I ever had the thought, I don't wanna be in the car with this woman right now. Like get, get me out of here. And the next day was our wedding. So <laughs> praise the Lord. We still got married, we're good. 14 years in now. Um, <laughs> weddings bring out family dynamics and the lesson from the story today, I believe, has profound implications for our family relationships, but also our relationship with God and our trust and our obedience, and also what we think about miracles and the glory of God. Uh, the title is Water Into Wine. It's a story you might be familiar with. It's actually the very first miracle that Jesus 
ever performed. It's in John 2, verses 1 through 12. What we're doing in this series is we're going through the whole book of the Gospel of John. At the beginning of each sermon, I just read the full text. And we're commanded in 1 Timothy, Paul told a young pastor named Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. And so I figure we're going to read the full text at the beginning of every sermon, and we're going to delight in and make much of God's Word. The sermon afterwards, not so, not as much important. And let's be really honest, we forget most of the sermons we hear. I forget my own sermons. We're in really good camp together, but we want to treasure the word of God. It is powerful in our lives, and we want to teach you to treasure his word. So let's read it together as we make much of the voice of God in our life through his word, starting in verse one. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. I always laugh at that part. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. So God, we just continue to welcome your presence in this place. What a joy to worship uh, with the body of Christ this morning to lift our voices. We thank you um, for everything going on in this room, but also around the facility uh, with the kids and with the youth upstairs. And we pray across the board that we would be in the posture of receiving your word and that our ears would be in the posture and have the ability to hear your voice. And we believe that you speak to us by your spirit through your words. So fill us afresh today with your voice, the voice of the living God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to go through each verse, back to verse one. Uh, they're in this wedding, place called Cana in Galilee, and get the characters in your mind of who is at this wedding. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there, and she obviously has some kind of investment into this wedding. So the bride and the groom must be friends of some sort. They could even be family members, who knows? And Jesus was there, who's a 30-year-old young man at the time. And his disciples, who basically look like Jesus' young friends, you know, are there hanging out at the wedding as well. The disciples, for sure, probably doing what a lot of young men do at weddings, checking out the girls and seeing who's available. That's what's going on right here. And you have a lot of interesting relationships. We don't know who the bride and the groom are. We also don't know who the master of the banquet is, but it alludes to whoever that person is. And like I mentioned earlier, there is a lot at stake 
at a wedding because of the preparation, because of the expectations, because people have traveled in, because you're spending money, because we're going to remember this day for the rest of our lives. We want it to be so very special. So there's usually pretty high stress. And I've done lots and lots of weddings as a pastor. And I usually look for some moment to kind of lighten the mood once the ceremony starts. And I've had a few really interesting ones where the mood was made light for me by like mistakes and errors. One was the very first wedding I ever did. I was probably 22 years old, something like that. And it was an older couple getting married and the bride was 45 minutes late. So we are, you know, at 10 minutes in, everyone's looking at me, is she coming? And I'm like, I don't know, I hope so. I haven't, I haven't heard from her. Here's the groom, he doesn't know what to do. For a while, no one even heard from her. So I am managing the room, you know, and as basically the kid in the room. And in this case, the, the, the stakes were getting higher and higher and the intensity was going up and up. Finally, we heard from her and I had to be the voice of her in the room till she got there. She said, tell everyone I'm coming. I'm on my way, I'm gonna be there. And I had to keep telling everyone, every 10 minutes until 45 minutes had gone by. And then she strolled in like nothing even happened and we just did the wedding. And there was another one where I took the ring uh, that was gonna go on to the groom. So it was a pretty like big kind of heavy ring. Oftentimes I'll take one of them and I'll hold it up and I'll share a little message about the significance of the ring. And this was for a friend of mine who was on our staff uh, at our church in LA years ago. And I held it up. We're in this, you know, auditorium. And as I held it up, somehow I dropped it. And it, the room is silent. It clunks onto the ground. You know, everyone hears it. There's, not a, there's no sounds being made. And we all collectively begin to hear it roll. And I'm not making this up or exaggerating at all. It was rolling directly towards an open vent that was in the stage. And we all just froze at first because this is a horrifying moment. And thankfully, it, it kind of rolled to a stop before it got to the vent. And since we didn't lose it, I was able to pick it up, make a joke, and it lightened the mood. But I almost got in serious trouble. Now that I've shared these stories, you're never going to ask me to do your wedding. And that might, you know, ease up my schedule a little bit. Not a bad thing. We have other, we have other ministers here that can do your wedding ceremony. Stakes are high. Family dynamics come out. And here's what happens in this story. Verse three, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother, Mary, said to Jesus, they have no more wine. Now you gotta get the context here. In the Middle Eastern culture, in that day and time, it was absolutely humiliating and even shameful to run out of wine at a wedding. And you have to imagine, they don't have the ability, if any provision runs out, they can't just go to the store and get more provisions. And in the context, if you study it, this specifically is something that marks you with shame to run out of wine at the wedding. So Mary, being just a good mother, not even, we don't know for sure her relation to the bride and groom, but she realized what was happening and said to Jesus, they have no more wine in the middle of this disaster. And it's really funny to think about Mary this way, but it, she kind of broke family dynamics 101. She, she, was, she was breaking the rule that you should not expect a family member to be a mind reader because she didn't actually ask Jesus anything. Look at what she actually said. She said, Jesus, they have no more wine. 
What she was actually saying is, Jesus, do something about this. And in counseling, we're told always, and I counsel people all the time, speak what you are actually intending to say. So in my mind, I'm not throwing shade on Mary here. Don't get me wrong, Mary, wherever you are. But, 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 but I think Mary's breaking one of the foundational rules here of really speaking clearly. Jesus, though, of course, knowing everything, knew what she was thinking. And then his response is kind of one of the classic scriptures in the whole Bible. Woman, why do you involve me? <laughs> now, let's really think about this for a minute. How many here know it is not a good idea, especially in a public place, especially in an already tense moment as a 30-year-old man after your sweet mother has asked you for a favor to refer to her as woman? Now, because we know the whole of scripture, we know that Jesus was sinless, but this still strikes me as pretty aggressive. <laughs> this strikes me as being in the middle of a difficult public moment where great shame is involved and having a disagreement with a family member. How many of us can relate to having a disagreement with a family wet, uh, member in and around the planning of a wedding? Everyone. That's basically what they are. They're one big disagreement <laughs> until you finally just do it and get into the marriage. It's an argument. And what I love about this is something we know to be true theologically from the whole of scripture. So we're not just using this story to lift this first principle from, but we know this is true. Number one, Jesus is fully human. We make much of Jesus as God, rightly so, and we're gonna talk about that today too. In fact, that's what the whole Gospel of John is about, that we would believe he is the Messiah. But we sometimes aren't as comfortable with and certainly don't spend quite as much time reflecting on the theological truth that Jesus is fully human. He never sinned, but he can relate. Like the scripture that my wife read earlier, our great high priest can empathize with us in every single one of our struggles. And the way I like to think about that is regardless of your thoughts on like the Me Too movement and the different variations of that in different sectors of our culture, I believe that Jesus is, is in the Me Too movement with you. In other words, anything that you were dealing with internally, any struggle, any problem, Jesus can look at you and say, me too. That's what it means to have a high priest that can relate to every bit of your weakness. And this is why the theological term we use of the incarnation, which is God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Son breaking into human history and actually becoming human flesh, fully human, human is so incredibly powerful because he comes so that he can fully relate to us and save us. The why of it is articulated at number two in your notes. Jesus became one of us in order to rescue us because he loves us. And the other people in the story are human too. Mary is fully human, of course. Joseph, who's not even Jesus's biological father, so that can be a complicated relationship. Joseph early on was accused of lying about the pregnancy of Mary. One of my daughters a few years ago here at Graceland Church was walking around telling people, hey, you know my dad, right? Uh, the pastor, Pastor Nathan, they would be like, yeah. And she'd be like, he's actually my stepdad. And people are like, oh, really? I, I know that. And then she, she, she would say, yeah, because, because God is 
my real father. Someone literally came to me and said, hey, by the way, did you know you're, she was probably seven years old at the time. Did you know Kenzie is um, telling people at church that you're just her stepdad? I was like, no, I didn't know that. And I think one person even said, are you, are you her stepdad? I was like, no, no, I'm not her, nothing wrong. Stepdads are great. But I was like, no, 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 she's my biological daughter. And I had to tell her, darling, um, what you're saying is theologically accurate, actually. I applauded her for her young seven-year-old theologically astute mind. But I said, please, please don't spread slander about your, I didn't say slander. Please don't spread rumors about your father uh, that, that are going to confuse people about our family. You can say that I am your earthly father and you have a heavenly father. So anyway, these complications existed in this situation and are real. And here's where I think it becomes really good news for us. And you might not have remembered this in a while, but number three in your notes, you are fully human. Did you know that? Have you realized that yet about yourself? You can take a deep breath this morning because you are in the club of humanity. We've got nothing to prove to each other. We've got no one to impress. You know why? We are all deeply flawed and imperfect. And you, my friend, you're one of the foundational members. (laughs) Take a deep breath. It's good to understand who we are and sit in the reality. Last night, I got to be with uh, this great author and pastor who I had not met before, Mark Batterson, who wrote uh, The Circle Maker, In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day. Some of our Some of our community groups here have gone through some of his materials. He pastors a church in Washington, D.C. I had not met him before, but got invited to be with a a few pastors last night. And he was sharing um, about a season that his wife and him were in counseling. And his wife expressed to the counselor one of her core fears. And you guys will be able to relate to this in one way or another. She said, I'm terrified that I'm going to pass on my worst flaws to my children. And the counselor uh, looked at her and just kind of said, yeah, you will. Bring them to me when they're ready. (laughs) And the reason I love that answer is because it's true. We are fully human. And yes, we will pass on good things, but we will pass on the worst things as well. You know why? We're human. And it's the same thing we wrestle with, too, about not wanting to become our parents. Have you noticed that the longer that you live, even if you have great parents that you love and respect and admire, there are certain elements of them that you would never want to replicate. Who's with me? There's always, doesn't matter how great the family is. And then, of course, sometimes these things are really traumatic, and I'm not here to make light of it. But the longer you live, the more you realize, oh, my goodness, I totally I totally just became exactly my mom or my dad or my grandma or my grandpa. But here's the thing, that doesn't have to put you in a a mindset of despair. That's just called humanity. And it leads to this principle that's powerful. Number four, it's okay not to be okay. I think we need a lot more of this understanding um, in the church of Jesus Christ. I think People need to get the message that the church is made up of very flawed humans. We see this over and over again when we make superstars out of leaders and then they botch everything up and we all get a black eye because of that. I'm, I mean, sometimes I'm shocked by those things, but at this point, I'm not really shocked by those things because I know these men and these women are human. 
and there are going to be flaws. And when we make too much of people, um, it's not gonna end well. In verse five, his mother, Mary, said to the servants, basically after, after Jesus shut her down, uh, oh, you know what? I, I just realized. Hold on a second. This is worth it. Oh, I can't believe I missed this. I haven't done this in a while, but I want to f- dial back a couple things because I mentioned the part where he said, woman, why do you involve me? But I missed this line. Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. That was ultimately his answer. And we know from the scope of scripture that what he's talking about there is something deeper. It's not time for my glory to be revealed. But he's kind of like saying what some of us say, your problem is not my emergency, woman, you know? Or or he's kind of saying what a lot of our teenagers want to say to us about chores. This This is like every teenager's dream. When your mom says it's time to do the chores or your dad says unload the dishes, that's a sore point in our house right now, so I use the dishes as an example. Um, Wouldn't you love to be able to say, woman, my hour has not yet come. Why are you involving me in this? I'm in eighth grade. I've got stuff to do. It's just the 30-year-old version of that. And I'm not, I'm obviously joking around, but I didn't want to miss that part of the text. He's conveying something deeper. He's literally saying, it is not the moment yet, mom, for my glory to start to be revealed. It's a, quite a deeper thing he's expressing there. And that's where we then pick up in verse five. His mother said to the servants, after Jesus said that, do whatever he tells you to do. And what I love about this is they are essentially at an impasse. They are disagreeing about what needs to happen. And the definition of impasse that I love is there's no option for progress. You don't see how this can go forward. And that happens in our families all the time. And do whatever he tells you essentially means obey Jesus. Obey the voice of God. And in any situation, whatever your challenge may be, anytime you don't know what to do, The one thing you can never go wrong with, number five, is obedience to God. Any situation. The trick, though, is you cannot force someone else to be obedient to God or to your version of what you think God is saying to them. All you can do in these moments is make sure you are obedient to God. And then reading on in verse six, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, so his mom wins this argument. He's now doing what she said. I think of this as he's honoring his mother, even though he disagreed. Again, fully human. Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. This already isn't making sense. So the servants are now doing things that that don't fully add up. And then in verse eight, he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. So they know it's just water. They're the ones who put it in there. And then Jesus says, take a cup of that water in the foot washing barrel and bring it to the person in charge of this ceremony. That makes no sense at all. And it is this wonderful invitational principle, obey God even when it doesn't make sense. I say it this way, obey God beyond all reservations. You will at times have reservations about what God is calling you to do. You will have reservations about being the first one to ask for forgiveness or starting the conversation or doing something that make no, makes no sense like this, but the best thing you can ever do is obey the voice of God. And you can only do it for you. 
I like how Charles Stanley said it. Obey God and leave all the consequences to him. Verse nine, they did so. So they obeyed Jesus. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. So when this master of the banquet tastes that wine, it's the first time that we're even hearing in this story that the water has become wine. Jesus has performed an absolute miracle from nothing. That master of the banquet tastes the wine, grabs the bridegroom, who this is the first time we're hearing about him, and compliments him. Now, don't forget the context we talked about earlier. The people who were at risk here and were gonna be shamed more than anyone else was the bride and the groom, because it's their wedding. You don't wanna go down in the books of they are the bride and the groom. They are the ones who ran out of wine. Shame on them, disgrace on them, something you don't do in that culture. Jesus, thankfully, because of Mary, literally not only covers their shame, makes wine from water, but then the master of the banquet starts complimenting the groom as if he had anything to do with it. So his shame is gone and he's getting praise heaped upon him just because of what Jesus did. And I love this definition of the gospel. Number seven, Jesus covers for you. He saves you from your shame and welcomes you into a new life without shame. Anytime someone is here at Graceland or a part of some ministry that my wife and I are a part of and God touches their life and they, and they wanna express gratitude to us, I'm thankful for that. We always need encouragement. But what I'm actually thinking in those moments is what this bridegroom must have ultimately felt, which is he knows he made mistakes. He knows he was imperfect. He knows by himself he was deserving of shame, disgrace, humiliation. He knows Jesus by his miraculous power covered for him. And he know only because of Jesus' cover does he have no shame. And only because of Jesus' cover does anything at all even good happen. And so I'm great that I always just say thank you when people say something about like a sermon or whatever else it may be, or talk about leading worship. But we, we know ourselves. We're nothing. We're dust of the earth, flawed, imperfect, broken, completely apart from our savior. And we can do no good apart from him. So it's entirely Jesus being glorified through our simple pointing to him. And this is good news for our lives. And it begs the question, and this is what we're gonna end with in verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And here's the key, and it's the theme of the whole book of John. And his disciples believed in him. A miracle is a sign of his glory that we would believe in him. And it lands us on this final and powerful theological declaration. Jesus is fully God. He is the Messiah, the promised one, the full revelation of God to man, your savior, your rescuer, who has done everything for you so that you could say yes and give your life to him and start the adventure of your life. He's fully God. I'm gonna invite the band to come up. We're gonna take communion as our response today. And I wanna invite you to close your eyes with me right now. Bow your hearts before the Lord. And as you get your packet ready, if you need one, you can raise your hand. Everyone is welcome to participate. 
No one has to participate. No one's going to be looking around, so no pressure. But we, what we want you to know is that if you take communion with us, you are making the declaration with us that you believe in Jesus and that you want to be a follower of Jesus for all of your days. That is the declaration. And as we begin to open up the top to grab the little wafer, I want to ask you these questions. You can just grab it in your hand and hold it for a moment. Do you believe in Jesus, the Messiah? Do you have shame or humiliation that needs to be covered by Jesus? Do you feel right now like the ones caught running that wedding who made serious mistakes? Do you feel like you're not okay? Do you need the miraculous power of God at work in your life? What's beautiful about these signs of his glory is they remind us, they remind you today that our lives are not meant to be built by our hard work. Our lives are not meant to be built by our great strategies, our perfect decision-making, our wonderful education, our business uh, ability, or anything like that. Our lives are meant to be built on miraculous signs of his glory. He is the only one with the power to change our lives, to direct our steps in the way that he has called us to live. We cannot, if we want to, get our lives to work out right. What we can do is rely on the signs of his glory. Same for our church. We are not here strategizing, trying to figure out every perfect next step. We rely on signs of his glory. May we be built on the miracle working power of God the risen son who covers over our shame and guilt. You know, the thing about this is that's so critical is whatever you start with is what you need to continue with. And if you feel like you've started based on your effort, you're exhausted trying to make all this work. But if you realize that you started on a sign of his glory, you can be at peace and at rest because it's all his work. It's all based on his signs and his glory. So Lord, we rest in your presence today. As we, as we reflect again and remember communion, we give you thanks for this, the ultimate sign of your glory, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Reading out of 1 Corinthians, when Jesus had given thanks, he broke the bread and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. His body was broken for us so that ours could be whole. Let's eat together, church. Go ahead and open your juice. This is representative of the blood of Jesus. When Jesus had given thanks, Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So Lord, we remind ourselves that we are in the new covenant, the age of grace and truth. And in this covenant, you have called us your beloved. We preach this good news to ourselves right now. If anyone here, it's, it's a new declaration, just pray in your heart, Lord, I, I receive this good news. I receive this message. I commit my life to you. I want to follow you for all of my days. Lead me in the way everlasting. Forgive me for all the areas I've fallen short. Thank you for covering my guilt and shame. Thank you for inviting me into a new life. Thank you for allowing me to live a life that glorifies you and points to you.
Thank you for your forgiveness in Jesus' name. Let's drink together, church. Lord, our, our hearts explode within us with new life because of this message, because of this invitation. And I pray for every person here that they would be filled to the brim and then overflowing today as they go, God, with the essence of life in Jesus Christ that transcends and far overshadows every circumstance in their life. And church, get whatever pain point you may have. We're gonna close in just a minute, but any problem, any, any challenge that you're facing right now, it might be one or two or three things, just get them to the forefront of your mind for a moment. And let's just understand that God takes what seems impossible to us. We're out of wine. There's only water. We're filled with shame. We've made the mistakes. There's no hope. We don't know what to do. He speaks his word over it and makes it a sign to his glory and rewrites that script. So allow that to be rewritten in your mind. We trust in you, Jesus, regarding this situation. We trust in you regarding this impossibility. May you show up and do what only you can do and may it be a sign to your glory. May it be a miracle. And may we find rest and peace in the fact that we can't even experience those miracles apart from the problems. May we find rest in the fact that I believe oftentimes you lead us right into the problems, lead us right into the challenges, lead us right into feeling overwhelmed, but it is there that you create a sign for your glory. And we just give you thanks. We again release our lives into your hands and yours alone, in Jesus' name. Before I pray this benediction, um, I wanna remind you uh, to talk to Bethany. Can you wave to us? Um, event coordinator for our Fall Fest. Help out, all hands on deck. The whole heart behind the Fall Festival is to build bridges with people in our community and help them know the hope of Jesus. That's it, that's the whole heart. We're not gonna be preaching at the event itself, it just builds bridges, it's just relationships. Do a great event, do it high quality, make it super fun and get to know people, no strings attached. But it takes us running that together and it takes us inviting people. If you wanna help fund it, any of that, you can just talk uh, to Bethany. And we have an amazing fall, I believe, coming up of God just doing special things here. So we're glad you're here, I hope you'll jump in. Um, not even feet first, but head first into uh, the river of God in your life and into, into our church family. We're honored to have you guys here. Um, I'm gonna pray this benediction and we'll be dismissed. May God the Father prepare your journey. Jesus the Son guide your footsteps. The spirit of life strengthen your body. The three in one watch over you on every road that you may follow. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you guys. Have a great day. Woo!